Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 136 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, this would be of course the Amateur Radio Operator episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that the lowest frequency band amateur radio operators are allowed to transmit from is the 136 kilohertz band and with that little bit of radio information i of course am matt and coming to us from his own little fashion boutique in la wearing his own version of issy miyake designed sony staff uniform is where can I get one of those babies at? I, I would rock that sucker every day. Hey, not everybody gets to wear Isimiyaki design staff uniforms, but apparently Sony employees from the 70s and late 70s and early 80s did get to wear Isimiyaki designed staff uniforms. So I, I'm picturing a very industrial like. Really plain grayish green jumpsuit. Do, I mean, do you have a picture of it? Is it a you know? I piece? really wish I did because all of the most more, some of the more recent stuff literally looks like a layer cake. So I'm thinking maybe it was just like a tiered layer cake that looked like a circuit board would be what you know you would have worn back then. What that? What's a layer cake? I'm not uh, familiar with. I know of a movie called Layer Cake. Well, layer cake. It's a cake with various layers, and when they're tiered. They get smaller towards the top, so they're kind of like tapered, like a wedding cake, you know. It, what color? Like, like is it? Well, I said that, know, that's why I said it. Green, I, I would gray? imagine back in like the late seventies, early eighties, it probably would have looked like a circuit board. So it would have been green with like gold pinstripes that kind of went in different angles and stuff. I've been meaning to ask you something months ago. Is this an okay time right now to ask you about bathroom hygiene? Sure. When when is it when is it not a good time to ask me about bathroom hygiene? church no we're good there really so in the middle of church if i ever went to church let alone church with you and this is why it would be okay <laughs> this scenario is never going to occur <laughs> i'll phone in i'll rig up the pa and matthew quentin this is jesus uh, which way do you it. wipe front oh. to back or oh, back dear God, to front who wants butt nuggets are you kidding me you're always supposed to wipe front to back you're not supposed to wipe back to front. Jesus, that's just disgusting. That was God asking you, not Jesus. So, <laughs> so, okay, so, I, you know, sometimes you have to go to the bathroom when you're at work. And that means sometimes you have to use the stall. Now, I've, I've been confronted with certain situations, and one of them, uh, well, one of the, well, this particular situation pertains to the paper toilet seat cover that one would place their nude buttocks on that would lay across the porcelain throne that has probably been, been sat on by, you know, 55 other people beforehand. Sure. So it's been 36 times I've had to use this paper seat cover. In your life or just at the work or what? In, in my life. 36 times. That's pretty times. good. That's, that's accurate keeping track. I'm, I'm it, it, impressed. Well, because, I mean, I'm faced with this problem every time. Usually it's like the, the last thing I'm going to do is use the work toilet, let alone a, a public restroom, period. Um, and 
it's it's when I absolutely need, absolutely need to use it, I do use it. So I would run in, and then I you know for you, I mean it's virtually impossible to be in a hurry and and easily grab one of those paper things out of its box without it ripping. I mean every time I pull one out, it takes me like five times to properly get one of those things out so I can lay it down. Well, pulling it out of the box is only half the battle. You now have to take that paper toilet seat covering and proceed to, like you're performing surgery, undo the little paper notches to unveil the hole for your, you know, the hole area. So my thing is, I take the time to sit there when it is an emergency and slowly have to rip it apart all around the little hole area so there is a hole. Am I doing something wrong? Because it seems like I'm taking way too much time, like six minutes preparing to sit down to relieve myself when technically I really don't have six minutes to prepare to sit down and relieve myself. I was never coached in how to properly use those really thin tissue toilet seat coverings. Matt, teach me. Yeah, see, I don't, I I, I am so rarely, like you, I, I would prefer to just wait until I get home, uh, if at all possible. And in the event that uh, the emergency happens, um, I will not use that. I will simply just wipe off the seat as best as I can and hope for the best. Because uh, the last time that I tried to use one, it's been several years now. Not only is it pointless to try and do that, because yes, you're right, you have to take all that time to try and tear the stupid fucking thing. It's it's like trying to open a CD case from back in the 90s, you know, you gotta tear the fucking plastic thing and it's got the little fucking other thing on it and you gotta wheel it around. Yeah, no, it's pointless because not only is the paper so fucking thin that you're gonna end up shredding the stupid thing while you're trying to just get the stupid flap to fall down, it ends up sticking to your ass, it sticks to your legs and your thighs, and the stupid but flap thing gets all wrapped up in your junk, and when you pee, it's just going to stick to you. I mean, unless you have, unless you don't have enough manhood to worry about that thing. But I would. Hey, feel Matt, bad we, for this you. is the SLS cast. We don't judge. No, we don't. I'm just. We don't. Then in judge. that case, you would not have this problem. But we don't judge, and well, see, that's why. I mean, hang on. That is not why I take the time to remove the flap, but. I do remove the flap, which adds on. Oh, so you actually completely just remove the flap. So now you've just got this like U-shaped piece of paper. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's even. See, see, now at that point, that's even worse because then by the time you sit down, now you're going sliding all over the thing. May as well be in a women's restroom. It's all about the proper placement because by that time you're like, well, you know, I don't want to worry about the flap. I already made it this far. Why don't I just keep tearing this? You know, and and consider this proceed. It's a procedure. That's what it is. Going to the bathroom in public and trying to do it correctly is a goddamn not, procedure. Not necessarily in public, but in a public restroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, depending on where you're at and what kind of lifestyle yeah, you choose. You know, some but... people are into that. And, and we're not here to judge. Again, we're not here to judge. I think we need to come up with and patent our own protective bathroom public bathroom seat cover that people can carry it like roll up maybe it can be like a gel padding 
Ooh, that uh, comfort. Prime comfort gel padding that you can also keep in your refrigerator so it's nice and cool whenever you oh, want to sit down. That's on it. hygienic. Yes, that's good. You know, honestly, well, that's you if you want an easy way to do this, if you want a really easy way to do that, uh, you know those little bottles of lens cleaner for glasses and whatnot? You just kind of, they're, they're like two or three fluid ounces, small cylinder, and, you know, they got like a little pump on it, and you just kind of spray action on your lenses. And, um, well, if you just took that stuff out, and then replace the lens cleaner with like Lysol. You could just, you know, a couple spritzes on the toilet seat there, wipe it around. Hey, look, germ free. Sit down and have fun. I mean, you can't say have fun because it's not fun every time. Don't judge him. You don't know if people aren't out there having fun while they shit in a public place. You know, you don't know. <laughs> Is that some kind of fetish? <laughs> oh, hey, honey, what did you do today? <laughs> oh, man, I went to the toy store and oh, I just took a giant shit. I, oh, babe, that is so hot. Oh, yeah. You know, somebody out there Sit probably on me has now. that fetish. I'm just saying. Somebody that you know knows that fetish? No. Oh, dear God, I hope not. But I, Because <laughs> if they have, they haven't told me. But I'm just saying, there's probably somebody out there with that fetish. This is a PSA brought to you in part by Stream of Consciousness. Or Stream of Conscious. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. All right. Shall we go ahead and get to some news of the weird? Yes, please. Okay. Well, a little bit of news of the weird just for fun. This one is is more, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of like justice porn again, but it's still kind of weird because you don't see this ever. From metro.co.uk, by way of Harry Redhead or Reedhead, because it's R-E-A-D-H-E-A-D, Redhead, Reedhead, I don't know. Wow. Red heed? (laughs) Anyways, by way of Harry. Man literally washed child's mouth out with soap. (laughs) You heard that right. A man washed a boy's mouth out with soap after seeing him kick an old man's walking stick and then swear a court heard. Ryan Burtwell, 23, was walking in a park near his home when he saw six-year-old Alfie Cook kick an elderly man's cane and told him to stop. But when Alfie told Burtwell to, quote, fuck off, end quote, and called him a, quote, gay boy, end quote, Burtwell walked to a nearby shop, bought some soap, returned, pinned the boy down, and stuck it in his mouth. (laughs) Hang on, hang on, hang on. Stuck the soap in his mouth, right? Yes. Okay, that was the it by yes. sticking it. In, okay. Yes, hence bought some soap, returned, pinned the boy down, and stuck it in his mouth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, if you look at a couple, they've, they've got a couple pictures in here. One of just the boy, and then one of the boy and apparently his mother. It is completely believable that you would need to pin this child down and shove a bar of soap in his mouth. I mean, the kid looks like a little shit. And mom um, does not appear to be the genial type of person. She appears to just, you know, and, and maybe it was just a bad picture, although I don't know why they she would have submitted to having this picture taken. I don't know, but hey, whatever. At the end of the day, though, Burtwell 
of Washington Sunderland pleaded guilty to assault at Sunderland Magistrates Court. He was given a 12-month conditional discharge and ordered to pay 85 pounds in court costs and a 15-pound victim surcharge. Um, I, I am assuming here that the conditional discharge is like a suspended sentence, but seriously, you know, <laughs> being able to feel good about <laughs> putting a little fucking shit in his place after, you know, being disparaged by said six-year-old because he fucking kicked the cane out from an old man. I think that's worth a hundred bucks. I'm not going to lie. I'm pretty sure that's worth a hundred dollars or a hundred pounds in Mr. Burtwell's case. What do you think, Tim? Does that sound like, does that sound like, uh, I will glad if that guy started a Kickstarter campaign, I would gladly pay him a hundred bucks. Donate a hundred bucks. <laughs> if he continued doing that to <laughs> shitty little children. Ah, yeah. You ready for some serious news action? Yes. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. First up, from HeroicHollywood.com, by way of Umberto Gonzalez, Ben Affleck explains differences between DC and Marvel movies. Let's see here. We're gonna. We've got a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of different um, people here that are referenced in the article. First up here, because it says the beef between DC and Marvel is heating up. First, Warner Brothers CEO Kevin. Tushihara, back in March, fired the opening shot on the difference between DC Comics and Marvel movies, saying, quote, The worlds of DC are very different. They're steeped in realism, and they're a little bit edgier than Marvel movies, end quote. Uh, followed by Warner Brothers president Greg Silverman, offering his due sense on what the studio saw as the differences between DC Comics and Marvel movies, saying, quote, There is intensity and seriousness of purpose to some of these characters. The filmmakers who are tackling these properties are making great movies about superheroes. They aren't making superhero movies. And when you are trying to make a good movie, you tackle interesting philosophies and character development. There's also humor, which is an important part, end quote there. And now, Batman himself, Ben Affleck, is getting in on the beef on the difference between DC Comics and Marvel movies, and said the following to EW, or Entertainment Weekly, in the Comic-Con preview issue, quote, it is more mythic. It is more grand in that way. And it is a little more realistic. Just by their nature, these films can't be as funny or as quick or as glib as Marvel movies. End quote. What do you think there, sir? Do you agree with Mr. Affleck and Mr. Silverman and Mr. CEO? I'm going to leave my point, my views of the Marvel movies away from my answer. But I think that comparing Batman to say Iron Man or the Avengers, you just really can't compare the two. Batman is more, uh, you know, methodical. And I think the Avengers is definitely more fun uh, and less brooding, I, I guess is a good way to put it. Now, I can kind of, in a way, maybe see that you can maybe have more of a dramatic story with 
Batman than you would with, say, the Avengers, Iron Man, or Thor. So, I mean, but really when it just comes down to it, they're just two different properties, I think. So it'll be, it's difficult to compare Batman and Superman to So the then Avengers. would you, or do you even care to speculate on whether or not that is why it has been harder for DC to gain an actual foothold, uh, especially outside the Batman franchise? Because of a more grittier nature to the storytelling and the stories themselves versus Marvel, which is generally a little more fantastic, even though, like in Age of Ultron, they're they're trying to, you know, instill more story and more grit, for lack of a better term, between the characters. I think they're able to get away with more stuff with Marvel, mar- mar- with Marvel, with Marvel, as in uh, with characters and doing stuff differently with characters and storylines, and they can alter the universe a little bit. And for the most part, fans really didn't care. You know, they still enjoyed the movies. But with Batman, and we all saw what happened with uh, Man of Steel, you know, they try to alter it a little bit and do something different. And the wrath of hell came down upon DC and Warner Brothers. So you really don't have as much liberties with Batman or the Superman properties. The good thing about Wonder Woman and uh, the other upco- uh, uh, a Suicide Squad is that there have yet been a uh, movie adaptations of those films. So they can there's more room to create something different, create something new. But they know ultimately they have to stand true to the uh, to the to the source material because I think it I, I I don't know I think it's it touches the fanboy mentality more so on a personal level than I think Marvel does and I'm not saying Marvel's fluff again I just think they have more breathing room than DC if that makes any sense no fair enough that is that is a I think a very very fair comment. All right, sir, what do you got for us? All right, there are a couple passings that have happened recently. The first one here, CNN.com. Not CNN.com passed, but Tony winning in Cheers West Wing actor Roger Reese dies. This is written by Greg Botello and Amy Asafi. Again, this is from CNN. Roger Reese, a Tony-winning theater star, also widely known for his TV roles, including in The West Wing and as Robin Colcord on Cheers, has died. He was 71. The Wales native spent most of his career on stage, including his Tony Award-winning Best Actor role in 1982, for The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. He also earned Tony nominations for acting parts in Shadowlands, Six Degrees of Separation, Indiscretions, and, most recently, in 2012, as a director of Peter and the Starcatcher. Still, you don't have to go to Broadway to appreciate Reese's skills, both as a dramatic and comedic actor. Also scoring several TV roles in the late 70s and later 1982 TV miniseries as Nicholas Nickleby, Reese broke through in 1989 as Robin Colcord, the love interest of the character played by Kirstie Alley in Cheers. Reese later had a standout role as British ambassador Lord John Marbury on the critically acclaimed The West Wing, as well as reoccurring parts on Mantis and Grey's Anatomy. End all quotes. However, I must say that the first thing I really noticed him in was a childhood or a a comedic favorite of a folk my age, 
Mel Brooks's Robin Hood Men in Tights. Couldn't care less about the movie now, but at the time, one of the best performances from the movie, or one of the most standout performances from that movie, was Roger Reese's portrayal of the Sheriff of Rottingham. He was the very kind of flamboyant, over-the-top villain who just nothing ever really went his way, and he kept getting sexually attacked by uh, Tracy Ullman's uh, evil witchy type character. Very funny. And for those of you who know what movie I'm talking about, you know exactly what I mean. Uh, and the second passing here is one that might catch a lot of you by surprise because I think this is an actor that none of us really realize was actually still alive until just recently. Famous, famous actor Omar Sharif passed away at the age of 83 years old. Not only was he famous, but he was legendary. This is from ScreenCrush.com. Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zivagio star Omar Sharif dead at 83. This is written by Jacob Hall. Uh, I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs here. Omar Sharif, the legendary actor best known for key roles in classic movies like Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zivago, has passed away. He was 83 years old. The BBC has a statement from Sharif's agent who reports that the Oscar-nominated and Golden Globe-winning performers suffered a heart attack in Cairo. He had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease earlier this year. Beyond that, details are unknown. Although Sharif had been acting for nearly a decade when he landed the role of Sharif Ali in David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia, that was the part that defined his career. In an era when Middle Eastern characters were relegated to the background, the Egyptian-born actor brought dignity and strength to a complicated and hilarious key character. He received a Golden Globe for his performance and an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. A few years later, Sharif would team up with Lean once again for Dr. Zivago, playing the role of lead Yuri and earning another Golden Globe Award. And it goes on to say that Sharif uh, never received major award attention again after those two films. Two brilliant actors passed away, Omar Sharif and Roger Rees. Well, that is definitely sad to hear um, and to kind of go in the opposite direction uh, from entertainment.ie John C. Riley confirms at Galway Film Fled uh, Fleet? I don't know uh, that he signed on for Wreck-It Ralph 2 <clears throat> the animated film about a video game villain who tries to change his programming and become good drew favorable comparisons to the like of Toy Story and Finding Nemo. As you'd expect, it became a critical and commercial hit for Disney. And today, at the Galway Film Flit, I'm assuming this is Irish, so I apologize if I have um, completely butchered that, uh, Riley confirmed that he signed on for the Wreck-It Ralph sequel. As well as this, the film's first nods to other video games characters such as Bowser from Super Mario and M. Bison from Street Fighter will be expanded upon. Wow. It's understood Disney uh, are in discussions with Nintendo over licensing of characters such as Mario and Luigi and Link from The Legend of Zelda. Um, me personally... If they are able to get these good characters and actually expand the story from the first movie, um, because there are definitely many, many tales that you can tell and all sorts of cool stories that can be related to retro gaming, arcades, the blending thereof, arcades shutting down, uh, new stuff coming in. 
And so they, they definitely ample room for entertainment in this area and expanding on the story. So as long as they pick a really good story to tell, I will be very excited for this sequel. What about you, Tim? What was it a sequel to? <laughs> Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, shit. Okay. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, wow. Oh, I had a shit in public. No. <laughs> uh, you know, I... I can't remember if we... Did we review Wreck-It Ralph on the show? I believe that we did. Yeah, we might. I think that came about uh, when we first... When we did the reboot of the SLS cast. But, you know, I really didn't care too much for the movie other than it uh, evoking the classic arcade game nostalgia. So I, I think if they did something more fun and goofy and just all well just fun and not try to have a kind of like a, a like just something different from the first one and, and also incorporating mario and you know zelda and all that stuff i think it'd be pretty cool because well for one thing you have pixels coming out and a number of other uh, video game arcade nostalgia based movies uh, will be releasing uh, within the next few years. So, yeah. uh, if they're going to do that, they better jump on the gun sooner, sooner rather rather than later. I don't know. I, I mean, when I saw the original teaser trailer for Pixels, I was like, "Well, this looks pretty fucking retarded." But then I saw the extended trailer, and because I was forced to, because it was like for Jurassic during Jurassic World or something like that, and. It actually changed my mind somewhat. I was like, okay, now this actually makes a little bit more sense and the story seems like it could be pretty funny. I don't think it's I don't I don't think that's going to change the movie, but at least now it doesn't look terrible. Um I think that given what they were able to do just in cameos and just in uh, what limited access they had to the properties that they were using last time, I I I have faith that even if it does include Mario and Luigi or Link or whatever in a larger capacity than what we just got to see like with Bowser pretty much just sitting in the room, I think that it will work. Um, but uh, to, to the direct question of Wreck-It Ralph, we actually reviewed it back in February of 2013. It was, it was the 10th episode of our reboot. In, uh, in regards to Pixels... That in no way is being bought off by Sony Pictures Entertainment. Oh, is that a Sony movie? <laughs> it is, yes. Oh, see? Pixels. Well, see, there you go. <laughs> good good call on doing the extended trailer there, Sony. <laughs> because your <laughs> teaser trailer didn't work. In addition to, <laughs> to uh, evoking nostalgia, I'm going to lump these two things together just because they're both pertaining to animated films, I guess. Uh, the first one, we were... Or actually, I was talking about The Iron Giant a couple months ago and how Brad Bird and, and fans were demanding Warner Brothers to release a special edition Blu-ray of The Iron Giant. Because since the movie came out years ago, about 15 years ago, um, we've only had a... Only a DVD has been available. No Blu-rays, believe it or not. Well, it turns out 
we will soon get a theater re-release of The Iron Giant. A press release was released, and uh, I'm just going to read a bit of this press release so you can get an idea of exactly what you are in store for. This is going to be brought to you by Warner Brothers as well as Fathom Events. They will be putting this on. It's just going to be for a limited time only. And it says this, Burbank, California, July 8th, 2015. Warner Brothers Pictures is proud to announce that the animated action-adventure The Iron Giant will be re-released this fall, remastered and enhanced with two all-new scenes as The Iron Giant Signature Edition. It will, it will be released in theaters for a limited engagement through Fathom Events, The Iron Giant Signature Edition, arrives to theaters for a special event screening on Wednesday, September 30th, at 7 p.m. local time, with an encore event in select markets on Sunday, October 4th, at 12 p.m. local time. So when I meant limited, <laughs> a limited screenings, I meant a limited screenings, as in only one show, possibly. The ticket on sale date and theater location for the Iron Joint Signature Edition will be announced this August online at www.fathomevents.com. And it goes on pretty much to say that uh, after the Iron Giant gets its re-release in theaters, that they will release it digitally. And there has been no, uh, no, I guess there there hasn't been any word whether or not it will be released on Blu-ray. And I take a little bit of a, I, I mean, I have an issue with that because I like to think that. Uh, I, or I like the idea of of actually owning the physical copies of movies that I love. Because we all know, especially if you have Time Warner Cable, you cannot always rely on your internet 100% of the time. So having the physical copy of your favorite movie handy might be a good thing for the event of, you know, your internet crapping out on you. But, oh well. Look forward to The Iron Giant in a select theater near you. Next up, Miyazaki. We talked about his uh, docu- documentary just recently. Well, some very inter- interesting news here. We all thought Miyazaki was going to be retiring. Guess what? He isn't. Again, this is from ScreenCrush.com, legendary animator uh, Hayao Miyazaki will direct his first 3D animated film. This is written by Jacob Hall. And it says, Miyazaki, the mastermind behind Studio Ghibli and the director of films like My Neighbor Totoro, Spirit Away, Howl's Moving Castle, and The Wind Rises, has been viewed by many as the last bastion of traditional hand-drawn animation. How fans will react when they learn that he's planning to make his first entirely computer-generated short film is unknown. But we predict, quote, generally bummed out, but maybe intrigued end quote the news comes to us from the film stage who reported that the short will feature a hairy caterpillar in the lead role and that the project will take three years to complete the finished short will be screened at ghibli museum in tokyo japan some fans may view this as a miyazaki giving in to the modern methods of animation that all but wiped traditionally animated movies from the cinematic landscape 
But with Studio Ghibli and all kinds of financial troubles that were that will prevent the company from releasing a new feature-length film anytime in the future, it's heartening to see a 74-year-old master filmmaker refusing to give up and try something totally new instead. The silver lining here is that Miyazaki is not going to retire. As was rumored some time back, even if he spends the rest of his life making CG shorts about bugs, his movies will always be worth watching. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think uh, about uh, Miyazaki doing these 3D shorts? Eh, I don't know. I remember last year when I had reported that he was going to retire and then like two weeks later had to report that he had changed his fucking mind. Um, he just... You know, I think I think he just needs to say he just needs to step away. Just like, okay, I'm done, Studio Ghibli, that's it, I'm not coming back. And then if he wants to do fun side projects and stuff like that, like these 3D shorts, well then fine. But people aren't going to take him seriously um, if when he keeps saying, "Oh, I'm going to retire, I'm not going to retire, I'm going to," you know, because you can retire from your main job and then still do things that passion projects or small things and just kind of do things and i think that those will be better received because at this point it just seems like the guy's afraid to give up or afraid of something bad happening if he walks away or some i don't know so yeah we'll see anyway uh, i meant to say that my previous article was my last news article so i'm good and i'm good as well all right well then we will go from the news into ultimate letdown ultimate if we have an intro for that or not we do oh outstanding i guess i'll just be i'll be surprised like i was last week with yeah because it's room. it's you remember it's <laughs> ultimate let down oh okay well hey with your little wuss voice <laughs> let down right on it's like you're getting <laughs> a kick out of stuffing soap into a six-year-old's mouth because that's what happens when you've done three of these things in a year kind of <laughs> Kind of forget if you have intros. Um, all right, so movie ultimate letdown. A movie that, for whatever reason, you were really looking forward to seeing, or um, perhaps just really interested in seeing, that disappointed you to no end. For me, this is a movie that we last discussed back in uh, back when the original series of the SLS cast was was around. So this is literally from like 2011 would be the last time we talked. I want to say it was like episode 6 or episode 10 of the original series. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Uh, or Hallows, whatever. Um, I cannot tell you how fucking excited for this movie that I was. Because... The roller coaster that the first six movies were uh, being really fucking shitty as compared to the book, then 
pretty shitty as compared to the book to being wow oh my gosh there's a bright spot it looks like they're getting it to absolutely destroying the best fucking book in the entire series in my humble opinion to then turning back around and saying holy crap they are actually going to do good to then coming to the sixth movie and you're like and then they get to the seventh movie and you're like Holy shit, they're almost following the fucking book verbatim. They're actually taking the time to really invest into the book so that you can feel all of the things that you're experiencing in the book and seeing it play out in such a wonderful way on the screen. And they ended it at just such a perfect point. And I'm like, yes, yes, we're finally going to close this bitch out and it's going to be fucking fantastic. Just for them to go and say, there was a book? Really? Was there a book called Harry Potter and Deathly Hollows? Because I don't remember one. We just made some shit up. Here you go. We're pretty sure Voldemort's just supposed to die, right? Harry wins? Is that is that the idea? Because that's about the only fucking things they got right. I was so pissed off. I was just... Because, I mean, it's like they fucking duped me. After all the money I'd spent on the books, after every fucking movie I'd went and seen, despite having known better for most of them... Still went to the fucking movie, you know. I just, I, I understand that you simply can't put everything from a book into a movie. It's not, it's simply not viable. Sometimes certain things have to change. Sometimes scenes have to shift or certain plot lines, minor plot threads have to be omitted. I understand that and I truly do, which is why I was so impressed with three and five because they did it seamlessly in three and five. And so I was like, holy crap, this was, this is going to be, this is going to be so fantastic when they finally were going so closely with the book in, in part one to just simply abandon it in, in part two is what the, is where the ultimate letdown comes from. If you were just never going to follow it in the first place, you should have just gone ahead and did whatever the fuck you were going to do in the first part of the movie and just let it carry on into the second one. Because you have so much buildup for the first one that when the payoff comes, it's, Everybody who has loved the books and the whole reason there were movies in the fucking first place has been smacked in the face for the last installment. Meanwhile, people who were watching the movies pretty much are like, oh, okay, well, I guess this is what's supposed to happen. Woo, bad guys lose. And and they're, they, they, there's no reason now because these people have just sat there and experienced the entire thing in cinema that hardly any of them are really going to want to go back and read the books at this point if they haven't already. So you've taken away the experience of wanting to read the books from the people who didn't get to do it in the first place and the people who did get shot on. I was just, I was literally crushed after watching this movie. And I'm, it, it has nothing to do with the acting or the cinematography or special effects. That's, that, that's not here in this discussion for me. I was just so completely and utterly let down and disappointed by the departure from the books for the final installment. And there's no going back. There's no way to do it again. Because something this successful doesn't get remade. I don't know how that works. We're on the third fucking iteration of Spider-Man in 15 years. But we can't get a better Harry Potter? I don't know. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Hallows Part 2 from 2011. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got for us? You're going to piss off all the nerds. I'm going to piss off all the bros. <laughs> with this ultimate letdown. <laughs> 
Okay, we can just piss off everybody. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't we done that already? I'm pretty sure we wiped that slate clean. You know, I'm fairly certain that the audience reflects how many people we've pissed off. <laughs> Uh, hey there, Bethany. Hope you're still listening, because my cousin decided she wanted to try and listen to the show. I don't know if she's going to listen anymore. <laughs> Alrighty, so my film from 1999, a rated R flick, directed by the Academy Award winning acclaimed uh, young filmmaker who went on to do amazing things for his career, Troy Duffy, The Boondock Saints. Yes. Wait, is that right? Did I did I get any of that right? No. Oh, no, Troy you Duffy. You did. You did. If it was opposite day, you got it all right. <laughs> I think I think it's the idea. Yeah. I got the year right. I got the title right. Uh, the movie is not acclaimed by critics. The director is not a great director, and he did not go on to do uh, great things. In fact, he went on to do the sequel of Boondock Saints, and that's pretty much it. Uh, apparently, according to Matt, he just spends his time yelling at people on Twitter. But I am talking about the Boondock Saints because I cannot tell you how many people I know a lot of them have been really good friends of mine that have come up to me and said, dude, you have to watch this movie. If you are a cinephile, you know, you have to see this movie. You will love it. How have you seen every movie, Tim? You have not seen every movie because you have not seen Choi Duffy's The Boondock Saints. So amongst the, the, the claim and the positive criticisms and the amount of quotes that people kept quoting... For years and years and years, and again, this was like at the height of height of its popularity, I think, like 10 years ago or so, I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll wait a year, and I'll watch the movie in about a year. Well, a year came around, everybody kept talking about the goddamn movie, and so I just got annoyed with it and decided not to watch it. Fast forward eight, nine years later to this past weekend, uh, and Matt wanted to review the documentary Overnight, which we'll be talking about pretty soon. And Overnight chronicles the uh, making of the Boondock Saints. And while watching the documentary, for one thing, it doesn't spoil the Boondock Saints whatsoever, and I'm not going to really spoil any detail or plot points of this movie if you haven't seen this movie yet, uh, which you probably aren't going to want to after you listen to this. I, I thought that the movie would be very interesting, I, or I thought that I would might be doing a disservice to the documentary if I at least didn't attempt to watch the movie. So again, I went into the Boondock Saints with expecting, you, you know, with all this, with all the praise from my friends in my mind, and from the opening scenes from the movie, I quickly realized that it would not be the case for me, that I would not enjoy this movie whatsoever. Now, the whole movie is over the top. It's okay for a movie to be over the top. I've talked about uh, a lot of great over-the-top action movies. One of my favorite ones to talk about is a Shoot 'em up But the movie is over the top, but there is no wit to it. There is no charm to it. Like, all these other over-the-top movies can pull it off because they are funny, or they do have good wit, and there is a charm to them. And there, which ultimately it redeems the movie for being over the top, or it redeems all the things that should technically not be redeemable. And unfortunately, 
this movie has a lot of unredeemable qualities, at least in my opinion. Even if you threw in Robert De Niro, probably still wouldn't save this film. For one thing, how am I supposed to be on the side of hardened vigilante criminals when I really don't completely get what they're trying like i i don't understand them you know i don't i i just i'm not i'm just not on their freaking side and it's difficult to understand them or understand their side when you have a piss poor script or when the movie is constantly trying to be cool except let the movie and the story just play out and that brings me to the next thing the movie is trying to be cool now if you remember pulp fiction the reason why Pulp Fiction is cool is because it's not trying to be cool. It's just cool. So whenever there is slow motion, it's not cool because of the slow motion. It's cool because it's just fucking cool. Now, with the Boondock Saints, they do the same thing. They do the slow motion. They have the the, the swelling up of, of music. And it just doesn't work. It's it was something always so bland. Like the guy is getting out of the car, but he he's trying to look really cool while he's doing that. He's walking across the street to go shoot somebody, but he's trying to look really cool as he does it. The, I mean, there's nothing aesthetically pleasing about the shot, let alone what the guy is doing, because it just doesn't. I mean, again, I mean, going back to Quentin Tarantino, because there's a lot of parallels with this movie to Pulp Fiction, because of the inspiration, Pulp Fiction worked because of the talent behind the screen and in front of the screen and the talent in the writing. You know, the movie had a formula that just worked. With the Boondock Saints, Saints, the movie just doesn't have a formula. I mean, its formula is, let's just try to be cool, you know, and try to be edgy, and just, let's try to be like Pulp Fiction. And again, the movie is just not fun at all. I mean, the only person that looks like that they're having fun in this movie, or that in some way is fun to watch, is William Dafoe. But even William Dafoe is overacting a great deal. You know, he is the overly obvious homo who is the crack investigator. You know, he can just come up with every, like, he knows exactly what the criminals are doing. But he doesn't necessarily know why they're doing it. But should, uh, because they're vigilantes, getting rid of the the real nitty-gritty crime of Boston, he's conflicted. Maybe... Maybe they're doing good. You know, maybe maybe he shouldn't try to bring them down, but possibly maybe even join them, perhaps. I don't know. It's conflicting for William Defoe's overacted character, I guess. And stuff like that doesn't bother me. Character choices don't bother me like that. But it, you, it, it's, it's all the same thing. It's one formula, the same formula throughout the entire movie. It's A, B, go back to A, B, go back to A, B, go back to A, B. The police arrive at a crime scene. Well, William Defoe, as he's explained the crime scene, then they go back and show you the crime that takes place. After that's over, the Boondock Saints, the Saints, go back and they re- they uh, regroup at, you know at their apartment or they regroup somewhere else. And then it goes back to a quick scene with William Defoe, and then suddenly there's another crime, and then it's like just the same process, just over and over again until the very uh, like maybe the last act of the movie when Billy Connolly shows up. But then, when you get to the last act of the movie, the movie is trying so hard to uh, to justify what they're doing in this movie as being something that is good. 
And that is another problem that I have. It's not badass because there isn't really any hard repercussions to these characters. Other than one character, there just really isn't that much. Yet, when the repercussions do happen, it suddenly gets very dramatic and very, you know, and then, and, and kind of, and, you know, sad for the characters, but then it's just over like that. And nothing carries over to the next scene. Which then, piecing scenes together, behind the camera, there were so many just, I don't know, there's just so much to fucking go through. I'm rambling now. I'm just gonna stop there. Again, so many of my friends, so many people have told me to watch the Boondock Saints over the years. Some people have told me it's because I got on the train too late. Honestly, I'm pretty sure if I saw this movie now, I still wouldn't like it. I mean, it's the same thing with me and Grandma's Boy. Back in the day when Grandma's Boy came out, everybody loved it. I watched it. I didn't really care for it too much. And like what I told Matt before when he was trying to uh, tell me the reasons why he really liked it, I also reminded him that we reviewed a little indie movie called The FP a year or so ago, and I gave that movie 4.25 stars. Because, simply, I just enjoyed it. And I can see why people enjoy this movie. But it's not a great movie. It is not an awesome movie. And personally, I think I'm let down by it because there's so many other mindless gravy movies out there that is considered better entertainment than this one so ultimate letdown for this time around the boondock saints and finally for ultimate letdown we have a special guest johnny white trash bring us home on the ultimate letdown johnny hi folks i'm johnny white trash and speaking of ultimate letdowns let me tell you a story When I was a young kid, I played this video game called Doom. And I played it for many hours. I even learned how to use the level editors and many other of the uh, mod tools. uh, Because I just, I loved this game. I loved all the mods. I loved the original game. I still, to this day, play the original 1993 Doom. Okay, I love this game. Couple other things I really liked early on in life were wrestling. My two favorite wrestlers of all time are still Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock. You now know him as Dwayne Johnson, but to me, he will always be The Rock. So one day, one day, I'm watching, I'm pretty sure it was Conan O'Brien, but don't quote me on that. And The Rock was being interviewed. And Conan says, now I hear, I hear you're working on a video game adaptation. What movie are you making? Something like that. And The Rock just looked at Conan kind of with a little, you know, half grin. And he's like, doom. Well, holy shit, was I ever excited. I freaked the fuck out because... Anytime anybody would say anything about video games and movies in the same sentence, my answer was always, they need to make a video game out of Doom. Now, Doom, because of its popularity, had, you know, tons of uh, uh, spinoff in other formats. uh, And they had these four uh, novels 
right? You know, kind of pulp style based on Doom. And I thought those novels were good enough that, you know, if you're going to make a Doom movie, why not use those novels, you know, or or anything? Um, and apparently the people who made this movie uh, did not read those novels or even play the fucking video game ever. Uh, that's all I can say. And some people are like, well, I think it follows more the Doom 3 plot. And Doom 3 was kind of a rapid departure from the original games, but that's the way video gaming had changed. 1993, you didn't need uh, as many story elements that apparently you needed 10 years later, whatever. And so Doom 3 came out, and I didn't really care about it. I still loved my original Doom. And I went to this movie. I had been together with my wife-to-be at the time for three months. That's right, the OMGWTF honey with a U. And we went to see this movie in the theaters on opening night because this was going to be the greatest thing ever. And at certain points during the movie, I remember yelling at the screen. I remember... Honey, trying to shield her face because she didn't want people to know she was with me. I came out of that movie and I was swearing and I was mad and I was pissed. I wasn't even disappointed. I went to straight anger about that movie because it was clear to me. It was clear to me that this was not a Doom movie at all. To me, it seemed like because Resident Evil was successful, and I thought the Resident Evil movie was a good movie, even though it took several liberties with the original Resident Evil storyline, but that's okay. At least in that game, or in that movie, sorry, I thought it was okay. In Doom, it really seemed like they just wanted to make Resident Evil in space, but they couldn't call it Resident Evil, and they're like, well, what games take uh, take place in space? That's not, that's not as easy to say as it sounds. Take place in space. <laughs> anyway, what video games take place in space? And they're like, uh, Doom does. And they probably just like did some kind of internet search, and they're like, uh, video games on Mars. And it's like, Doom. Doom, I think I heard of that. Let's use that. I... Just can't believe, like, I was not expecting an Academy Award winning performance out of this movie. I really wasn't. I was kind of expecting more of a, well, I was just expecting a hack and slash, you know, watching my favorite uh, 16-bit video game characters come to life and pretty much none of my favorite video game characters were in that movie. Um, it really seemed to get away from the fact that, okay, in the original Doom, okay, there's there's not much plot, but the simplest way to say it is there's a moon base on one of the Mars moons, Phobos, I believe, and they were doing experiments and drilling and shit like that, and they accidentally opened a portal to hell. So basically what you were dealing with was alien demons and zombies and shit like that that was you know it was very hell centric you're supposed to end up in hell by the end of the game right and instead what we got was 
Nothing like that. Nothing like that at all. I could go on about how disappointing this movie was for days. I could sit there because I know too much about Doom. I know too much about the people who made Doom. I know too much about all the stats of Doom, about the level design of Doom. And I didn't see anything in that movie that represented my favorite childhood years at all. And so that's why that movie to me was the ultimate letdown. Not because it was bad, because honestly I wasn't expecting a good movie. People with taste never seem to like the movies that I like. For example, Terminator Genesis was a great movie, guys. It was a great movie, just saying. But no, you guys have taste and you don't like it. And I'm bugging you. I'm bugging you. It doesn't really matter. But those are the type of things I like, and for the most part, My favorite movies get low scores on Rotten Tomatoes and things like that. But really, I was expecting some blood, some gore, some demons, some hell references, and I didn't get any of it. So that's why this was my ultimate letdown. And sadly, I think I heard a rumor somewhere that they're actually thinking of making another doom movie and let's just say i will not if there is a new doom movie and i highly doubt they will if there is i will not go into it with high expectations at all so thanks for having me matt and tim i just really as soon as i heard you guys were doing ultimate letdown i'm like well it's another chance to bitch about that terrible doom movie so i gotta do it so thanks guys and we'll uh we'll talk to you next time. That's all, folks. Once again, truly a dizzying intellect. Thanks again for doing that for us there, Johnny. Of course, you can always follow him at Team White Trash. Well, that brings us to the close of Ultimate Letdown. And we are going to be uh, trying out a new segment next week. It's called Was It Worthy? It's going to be a movie. We basically are going to take a film that won some kind of major award, good or bad. So it could have been a Razzie. It could have been an Oscar, a BAFTA, SAG, Golden Globe, whatever. Um... And we're going to tackle that award that it won. We'll we'll look at the year it came out. And it doesn't have to be an old movie. It could be a newer film or whatever. No real timetable on it. Um, We'll look at the other nominees for it and other films that came out that year and just kind of decide, was this film worthy of the award slash awards that it won? And to make it a real easy one this time around, just to kind of, Get everybody in the mood. We're going to be doing The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, It's from 1991 and was actually the last film, uh, at least so far, the most recent film, if you wanted to look at it that way, that actually swept the Oscars. It won the Big Five. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. This was at the 64th Academy Awards. So we're going to give that a shot and say, was it worthy? But there's a catch, though. While Mm. we're reviewing it, and if you are listening to our review of Silence of the Lambs, you have to tuck your penis between your legs throughout the entire <laughs> review. That, that, that's a stipulation. It is set in stone. It is a rule. 
You have to tuck the junk between the legs. And if you don't have one, for whatever reason, could have been a crocodile alligator accident, you know, incident, be creative. Sure. And do you think Ted Levine does that, like, in other parts? Like, when he was on the state, when he was on the set in Big Game? Do you think he, do you think he did that just for kicks? It, it helps him really get in the mood. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. So, without further ado, folks, here we go. It is... The Movies! And our movies this week. We had a bit of a miscommunication that resulted in saying Good Call was going to be one of the films for this week. There is no Good Call film. It was actually the Ethan Hawke flick Good Kill. So I apologize for that. Um, If you tried to watch it, um, then I apologize that that miscommunication happened. But it was actually Good Kill. 2014's Good Kill. So we had Good Kill... Overnight, the documentary, and Big Game, also from 2014, but actually a Finnish film. We are not here to please you, huh? Look at that. Covering some uh, hometown filmage, as it were. Where would you like to start there, Tim? How about Overnight? All right, Overnight. Now, uh, this was, of course, referenced just a few minutes ago by Tim due to his ultimate letdown. This is the 2003 documentary. It's by Tony Montana and Mark Brian Smith. This is the documentary that basically follows the rise and subsequent fall of Troy Duffy, the writer-director of the Boondock Saints. Uh, This film was made at his request. And it's interesting because while the film definitely is shot on low-budget cameras, uh, for the most part, they do kind of get slightly better quality towards the end of the film, and it's even remarked on at at some point there. Um, it's not about... Th- this particular film is, isn't so much about cinematography. This, this is really more of like a... Um, Glorified is kind of the wrong word, but I guess we'll just say grandiose. There we go. Kind of a grandiose video diary of what was going on with Troy Duffy and his friends and cohorts, both musically and within the film business. And even just as people who were around him after he landed this major deal uh, to make the Boondock Saints and then the attempt and subsequent fallout from it. Anybody who watches this movie will not be able to help themselves by walking away from it without being able to say, this Troy Duffy character, what an amazing fucking penis. And I don't mean that in the good way. I mean, like, this guy's a royal fucking dick. Nobody will be able to walk. Nobody is going to walk. No, no, you're misunderstanding him. No, no. Everybody is in agreement. This guy's a fucking asshole. But even though this guy is a fucking asshole, I think it's really telling that there were some things that were going on behind the scenes that I definitely did not help the situation and definitely fueled his inner assholeness. Or inner. This guy doesn't have an inner asshole. I don't even think he has... I think just the whole entirety of his being is one giant sphincter. So... 
It's interesting, though. I found a really good article back from 2004. It's on IGN.com. Um, and this was by Mark Brian Smith. Um, I'm sorry. I take that back. It's by Fred Topple. And it was in conjunction with Mark Brian Smith that this was an, uh, an overnight interview. And they were discussing all of the behind-the-scenes stuff that happened with this film. And there are some interesting things. Now, the, in the film, they discuss briefly Ewan McGregor and how Troy was going to go out there. The initial plan was for them to go out with Troy to document that, but they literally didn't have the money to, for plane tickets to go out there. And so you go to find out that um, Ewan McGregor, of course, never joins the picture or anything, but that's because Troy was under the impression, and they do discuss this part of it, that there was going to be some kind of magical love affair, and Troy and Ewan were just going to, you know, be these lost souls who somehow found each other. And of course, that didn't work out. Um, the article says that he showed up in New York and Ewan didn't want to get drunk. They got into an argument over the death penalty. So, um, yeah, and that, that was a quote from Montana there. Now, it, it's also interesting, though, because they do also briefly discuss, there's this one particular scene, I want to say about 20 minutes into the film, where... Duffy is literally screaming in the phone at a producer or a, a casting agent or something like that. And I'm like watching this guy going, holy shit, no one's going to work with you uh, talking to him like that. But you can hear he has, he is legitimately frustrated. He is just so upset by what's happened because there was this backroom thing going on where um, Weinstein was... I think the entire goal of the initial deal was really just to try and get the property itself because the property, the, the story really had potential um, and they did see it as maybe the next Pulp Fiction. Um, but they didn't, that didn't necessarily mean they wanted Duffy to do it. And so they kind of strung him along through pre-production to keep him on the hook so that they could keep him long enough for the payer play to fail. And he was not aware of that either because he just didn't know any better or he wasn't properly informed or whatever, but he's screaming at this guy. Don't you fucking call me a liar. I didn't fucking know about all this kind of shit. You can't fucking tell me what I knew. And I'm like, okay, here he is being an asshole. And granted he has a right to be upset, but even through that, in the article here, they're telling him he's got virtually a $20 million guarantee out of a lawsuit that could happen from this because of the way that Miramax more or less screwed him. And instead of getting in on that and actually following it to its proper conclusion to actually get the film made in a timely manner with a good budget and good people behind him, <clears throat> Montana says that this occurred. Quote, and they said, sue us. So Troy's producer said, we should sue them. We'll get $20 million because that's what the anticipation was that they could get from what they had happened. Troy let them out of the deal because he believed that the movie was going to succeed no matter what. And if it did, he was going to say, fuck you to everybody. End quote. And that's the problem. That is the one problem with Troy Duffy that this movie exposes over and over and over again. It's like he has this natural raw talent, but he doesn't understand the concept that he needs people to fulfill 
this talent, to bring the talent and the product that the talent has to fruition. He just thinks he can do it on on his own. And uh, and this is one of the things that we were talking about because I went back and watched Boondock Saints and I was a fan of Boondock Saints. Now, I watched it back in 2004 for the first time. I thoroughly enjoyed it then. Watched it again this time um, and was able to recognize a lot more flaws than I saw the first time. So um, I am fully here to say that while I enjoyed Boondock Saints, it is not the best movie in the world. Um, and... I also watched Boondock Saints 2, which I had not seen because, by all accounts, it was not good. Um, not even, and I'm not talking about critical standards. I'm talking about the cult following that the first movie had did not gain the second, did, did not maintain itself in the second film. Um, there's no denying that this guy has talent. Now, the problem is I don't know how much help he had behind the scenes or in the editing room, as uh, Tim had pointed out, both when we were talking and a little bit to what he alluded to in his ultimate letdown. But the guy, I would love to know exactly how much help he had behind the scenes. But all, by all accounts, even the people on the set were like, the guy just knows how to get what he wants out of a character. And he knows exactly what it is that he has in his vision and how he wants to lay that out for the camera to pick up. That's not something that you can have. That's very, something very, very rarely that is found inherently in a person. People usually do have to go to film school to learn that kind of stuff. Um, but the fact that he simply will not acknowledge the fact that other people have to put into the process to get the film to be successful is evident. And I think, honestly, that's evident in the final product of the Boondock Saints, but it shows itself in spades in the Boondock Saints too. And I remember looking up one of the comments that was the YouTube or or Reddit, or something like that, that I was looking through when I was researching over, uh, overnight. And one of the comments was, I can't believe that Boondock Saints 2 got made. Quite frankly, after watching this, I can't see how he managed it either. Um, and yet people still hold out hope that there's going to be a third one. The movie itself, I got to give three and a half stars for if nothing else, then just for watching the ride. That's all I have to say about that. I thought this was a very good documentary on multiple levels. One thing I thought was really cool seeing Hollywood in the late 90s, because my favorite Hollywood is the 90s Hollywood, because that's when not only were a lot of movies being made, a lot of really good movies being made, but it was a very transformative period of time for the movie industry. Young directors were coming onto the scene. A lot of the older, more classic directors were slowly kind of bowing out of the picture. So it was just a cool, fun time. And watching this, you can kind of see why Weinstein wanted to give Troy Duffy a crack at doing this. Because, I mean, to be honest, to be fair, Troy Duffy was very passionate about his script. And... I think in some way he was a little too passionate. And I think that passion quickly turned into douchebaggery of sorts. And it's important to note that Hollywood is a game. 
especially when you're a writer or a first-time director who is given such a grand opportunity as this one. If he was smart, he would have been a little bit more civilized about certain things and worked with what he had. The only reason why those people didn't want to work with Troy Duffy is because of Troy Duffy himself. They were talking about Miramax and how this one executive, this one lady at Miramax just wouldn't talk to him and wouldn't come to any deal with Duffy because he was a womanizer and, or, or something along the, those lines. I don't remember exactly what somebody paraphrased her comment as being, but it was something along the lines of grotesque womanizer. And the funny thing is, he is a womanizer. And not just him, but a lot of other people in the industry that you see pop up in this um, it, it, within this documentary. And unfortunately, it's a lot of the people that he was hanging out with and, and putting a lot of stock into. And those were not the people that he should have invested so much confidence in. Because they were not investing any confidence in him. Now, was Weinstein at fault for any of this stuff? I'm sure he was. But again, Hollywood is a game. You play nice. He was lucky to be in the position that he was. He plays nice this time around. For his second movie, he could have been in a better position to, you know, to make more demands. Especially with that confidence he had, you know, if he had that much confidence that his movie would do well, then you work with what you got. I mean, the guy was, is just self-destructive. Just nothing really worked out. And it's just amazing how Duffy was just so full of himself, you know, that he kept saying that, oh man, I've achieved more than any other person, yada, 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 oh, this is, I'm the ultimate rags to riches story. But none of that stuff really amounted to anything else. You know, which is kind of the fun irony of it. And I say fun because I really don't think that guy deserved it. Yes, he is, you know, he came from poverty or whatever, or he came from a very blue-collar family. That That's just not a good reason. The documentary, though, itself, again, I mean, I thought it was very interesting to watch. It focused so much on Duffy and him being as eccentric as he is. That putting it mild, mildly, that I think more of the bigger picture of really the ultimate thing that was going on uh, was kind of overlooked in some way. Though that is not saying that focusing on Duffy himself was not entertaining, because I'm giving this one four stars. I thought it was a very entertaining documentary. But again, I just think they could have focused more on, you know, really the bigger picture. But overnight, really good. Recommend it. Four stars. Right on. And I just want to, I, I definitely agree uh, with virtually everything Tim was saying. I think, though, I, I don't remember, was this in the documentary, the quote that about success uh, doesn't change you? It's more like a truth serum? Was that in there? Yeah, I think that's yeah. like at the the beginning or the end. Yeah, it, it was a very, I think it was a very, very well-found quote. Yeah, Basically that uh, success doesn't change you. It acts more like a truth serum that reveals what was already there. And, man, I'm, I, could, I don't think I could agree with that anymore. Uh, where would you like to go from there, sir? How about Big Game? 
Big game. All right. So we've got the uh, 2014 Finnish action-adventure film. And this is based on a 2013 book of the same name. And uh, the only real major star I think that most people would recognize just by name is going to be Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, however, Felicity Huffman is in it. Uh, Victor Garber, Ted Levine. Uh, Jim Broadbent is in it as well. And Ray Stevenson um, are definitely going to be people that when you see them you will recognize them um all right so basically we've got this hybrid uh i don't know flag bear term terrorist plot uh, that brings down air force one and the president finds himself shot down uh, in a Finnish forest where he has to depend on a 13-year-old boy going through a hunting rite of passage in order to survive, for the most part. Um, this movie, I gotta say, is truly a 80s, 90s throwback to the way action films used to be. Um... The only problem that I had, and maybe I don't know if this was something that was necessarily a change from the book to the script, but certain aspects of the writing, for example, uh, Victor Garber, he's the vice president, and he he just the way he talks about things you know i i am the vice president of the greatest country on the planet in the history of the world and as god is my witness i will save thee from thine own destruction mr president my captain no oh captain my captain you know he he literally talks like that and, it's, and he doesn't do it all the time it's just like when he's trying to be grandiose for some reason so like when it's just kind of regular talking time he talks a little more normally and then you also have uh like ted levine plays general underwin he's like every stereotypical general in the history of action films with the exception of richard crenna but i think he was a major anyway um and so there's there's lots of stereotypes that are in there that kind of at this at the same time make it fun but make it make you kind of go really this it maybe Finnish people like this I you know I don't know um, the blend of real of of the cinematography and the actual live action stuff with the CGI stuff that they did um, pretty good but at the same time also suffers for me from the same problem of cool throwback but i don't it just it at the same time it was a little too cheesy um and yet the movie definitely has heart it definitely has some fun parts to it and has and shows and definitely shows a progression as they move along um at the end of the day on this one, it's not a terrible flick. I, I ended up liking it. I give it just a flat three stars. This is definitely not the best movie by any stretch of the imagination. I found it to be far better than okay, but it's got a lot of flaws in it. But hey, way to go, Finland. Good action movie. Fun action movie. Three stars. We've been watching Samuel L. Jackson play badass characters for 20 plus years. It is virtually impossible to buy him as anything less 
than super badass, especially as a very wimpish president. (laughs) And because of that, felt like he just didn't seem all that comfortable, Sam Jack, in in the film. Uh, Not just him, but every other non-Finnish actor in the movie. Jim Broadbent, Victor Garber, everybody else just didn't feel comfortable in this film. I thought it was a good story, but I just thought it was poorly structured and the script work wasn't really all that great. Again, it's probably something lost in the translation and um, it being a Finnish film, though I thought it had a cool look to it and it did have a good idea. I just didn't understand it, why people thought it was really a cool throwback or a great action movie, because to me, I didn't really think the action really wasn't all that great. I thought it had some good ideas, but good ideas don't really equal great execution. So I just think this movie wasn't good. That's it. I mean, I can see why people do enjoy it somewhat, but I don't understand why some people, like, absolutely loved this movie, because there are a number of people that do love this film. Two stars for me. Right, well then that leaves us with Good Kill. Not Good Call, but Good Kill. 2014 American drama film directed by Andrew Nichol um, and stars Ethan Hawke. Um, Major... Thomas Egan, he's a uh, he's a, he's an Air Force former combat pilot who is now a uh, drone pilot. He works out of Las Vegas, right? Is that is that right? He's in Vegas, isn't he? Yeah, okay. yeah. Sin uh, City, the city with light. <laughs> and he, it, it the movie presents a very interesting balance. Um, I, I don't want to quite call it lock with drones. But it it kind of made me think of that. Um, he balances what he does during the day with going home to his family at night. And he has to kind of live with himself because even though he's not actively there flying over and shooting people and, and bombing and stuff like that, he is still able to see, because it's drone strikes, so he's still able to see what it is that he's doing, even though he's doing it um, in in a very real life-and-death video game. Oh my god, it's kind of like toys came true. <laughs> Holy shit, I didn't even think about that. Alright, sorry, just kind of a weird off shoot there. Um... And so here he is, still he has to be responsible for all the things that he's doing. Whether or not he's being ordered to is more or less irrelevant to the narrative of the film because it's still him doing it. And then he goes home and everything's honky-dory with the kids, you know, with the wife and kids, whatever. Um, I think that the dilemma that is being served up is timely for today. And I believe that Ethan Hawke is someone who uh, can definitely, not can, but definitely does play this character well. I just don't know if it needed a whole film. 
I'm I think that this is something that could have been a lot more thought provoking as a short film than a feature length film. And I mean, and definitely getting towards the longer end of a short film, I would say, you know, 30, 35 minutes would probably have been really, really good to bring this film home with everything else. So I'm giving this one, um, so I'm going to give this one three stars. Uh, a solid three stars. Definitely like this film. I just really felt that it was, it, it truly was too long for the subject matter that it was trying to cover, but it's still really good subject matter, and I think that it is definitely worth looking into, and Ethan Hawke's performance is, performance is really good. Also, I realized, uh, I'm really sorry to jump this in, I meant to give Big Game two and a half stars, not three, um, because I still liked it, but it's really just okay, so I apologize there. Uh, so three stars, good kill. Three stars, for sure, this time. Bring us home, Tim. Are you sure? Three, three stars. Yes, I realized in my notes here that I accidentally uh, swapped my ratings for Big Game and Good Kill. Because I was like, no, Good oh. Kill was not two and a half stars. And then I realized what I did, so sorry about that. Good Kill, three stars. Good yes. Kill. I thought Good Kill was a flawed but well-made movie. I thought it was really good character work by Ethan Hawke, and I really like the tension that's created during all the the drone strike scenes, when really the pilots are just sitting in a metal box, or whatever the hell those boxes are made out of. It looks like one of those, like, those cargo shipping crates that you'd find in a shipyard somewhere. But it created interesting tension that you really... You know, you're you're very much invested into what's going on because of the acting and because of the storytelling. And like what Matt mentioned before, the story is very timely. It's relative to now because all this stuff is actually going on now. You know, you have pilots. So I'm sure there's, a, there's pilots somewhere that are going through, if not the same thing, but something that you know, is equally as devastating to one's professional mindset or the career mindset or the career goal or, you know, whatever. But like I said, though the movie was good and well-made, it is flawed. I give this one 3.5 out of 5. I, I definitely recommend it. I think people that who are not as critical of about movies are going to like this movie uh, a lot more, maybe. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. It's one of those you can go either way with this type of movie because it is kind of political. And um, the first 30 minutes of the movie, I mean, it's pretty obvious what kind of stance that the movie takes. However, I do like how they're not trying to make this group of people, these pilots, into bad people. That's what I really liked about this movie is that it wasn't it wasn't propaganda, but it was a good movie telling you a really good story without making the obvious person out to be the bad guy. And to me, I think this is kind of really I mean, if you are familiar with the movie, you know, I, I really do think that, you know, not wanting to be, get political or anything that it is, you know, it isn't the drone pilots faults that they have to do this. This is just their job. And I'm pretty sure there are some out there that do have a conscience and do not want to be bombing certain sites where they very well may be innocent people. I also didn't really care about the forced love story there at the end of the movie. Uh, I, I just thought the movie would have benefited being a little bit more, real and tight-knit, and with the ending that they went for, the general ending that they went for, it felt a little cheated with the revelation of it being a love story, and I'll just leave it at that. I give this one 3.5 out of 5. 
I recommend it for sure. All right, very good. Well, that brings us to the end of the movies and the movies for next week then. I guess we should say what those are going to be. And we'll get them right this time, I promise. Apparently I don't know how to read things and I don't know how to do my own fucking ratings right anymore. But whatever. Uh, Next week's movies, Ant-Man, Minions, and Slow West, available on Amazon Prime. Of course, Minions is still in theaters and Ant-Man will be premiering this weekend. So... I think that's it and brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we, of course, are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit1345. You can even climb aboard the information superhighway and track down tim on twitter if that is your heart's desire and as always you can subscribe to us on itunes and or follow us on stitcher radio once again this is matt saying that thanks to troy duffy i get to say this i think women secretly yearn for the return of john wayne and don't even know it and this is tim take care cinephiles and we will talk to you again next week Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.